right? Uh, it is uh, much easier to find people to read uh, scriptures before the sermon when they're not, you know, like full chapters of, you know, 30, 40 voices. So I appreciate that, Carissa. I did ask her to do it in a, uh, a British voice um, just because that's typically Deb's, and she does it, does it really well, but to no avail. But maybe next time. Maybe next time that should work out. So um, I do appreciate everyone being here today. Um, as Carissa mentioned, um, we just finished Daniel. We're going into Philippians. And if you remember kind of the theme around Daniel, we, just, we saw the importance of living as exiles in this foreign land. Um, and that obedience to God during that time was not to just pull away or run away, but to fully engage uh, to press in, and we saw that call in Jeremiah where it, where it talked about that people needed to, like, get jobs, to settle down, have families, be successful, um, and that was exemplified in the lives of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they rose to prominence in the Babylonian Empire, and then God used that in order to, to shine his glory to all of Babylon. Uh, God was calling them to live in such a way that his love and values would shine to Babylon and through the lives of his faithful servants. Um, and they were to do that until God himself actually just pulled them out of his situation and caused them to go someplace else. Now, they, they weren't supposed to run from that culture, uh, but to understand it and engage it. And this is where culture can be a very interesting thing. Um, if you've ever spent time in just, uh, especially, yes, a, a large amount of time in a different culture, you probably have heard the term culture shock. Uh, this is when you're going to some place that's completely different from, like, a, a, a world that is different from how you grew up understanding it. Um, and then when you get there, it's, it really is a kind of a shock to your system. Um, you see people just doing everyday things that are normal for them but are just completely foreign to you. And you go through these stages of culture shock depending on how long you're in these, in these places. Um, and it takes time for you to be able to kind of go through that and process it and get to a place where you have like this deep understanding and affection for that culture. Um, and oftentimes we, we really do take for granted how culture overall just kind of influences us or affects us. So here's kind of a personal example for me. So for those of you who don't know, that I, I grew up in Texas, and I lived in Texas till, um, you know, probably till I was about 34 when we moved up here. Uh, but I grew up in a town called El Paso, and if you're not familiar, it's the little point on the left that borders Mexico and New Mexico. So that's, that's where I lived the majority of my life. And when I was 23, I moved out to the Dallas-Fort Worth area to go to seminary. Now, being at seminary, I was not just around, you know, the culture of Dallas-Fort Worth, which is much different than El Paso, uh, but I was also around people from other states, from like Alabama and Oklahoma and Mississippi. And one day we were getting into a discussion, we just happened to get in the session uh, uh, around homecoming and things that happened during homecoming. Now, I brought up a topic that as I was going into it, it yielded this response of confusion and oftentimes disgust as I was going in and out of this conversation. And that is around homecoming mums. Does anybody know what a mum is? Oh, great, good. So there's, there's a few, there's a couple up here. Um, so we, we do have a picture. So here's kind of like 
the idea of what a mum is, uh, again, this is kind of going back a little bit here, but a mum is basically a flower that's decorated that goes on a, on a shirt. And so during kind of like homecoming week, you would give that to your date and you put that on and they'd wear that, they'd wear that to the football game or kind of whatever. That was just kind of a, a cool like sign to be able to show, hey, this is it. These are often decorated with the colors of your school um, and it was, it was really fun. And, and this is kind of how the mum started. Now, over the years, uh, if you've ever heard the, the phrase, um, everything is bigger in Texas, it also goes to mom. So this grew into something very simple and, and wholesome, as you can see from the photo, to, Alexa, if you can show the next one, to these monstrosities. Now, these, these moms basically would go, would cover somebody's entire torso and go down to their feet. Um, there were times where they would actually like drag along and you can hear, they would have bells in them too, so you would hear like, you know, bells coming down the hallway. And really this was like a, a, a status symbol uh, when you were in high school. Like if your date could afford this giant mum, it, it really meant something. Um, it was so much so like certain high schools had rules about like what you could have on your mom. Like Courtney can tell you, like freshmen were, were required to only have like one or two colors on their mom, and then that got progressively more as they became seniors where they can just kind of go all out. Uh, a lot of times, like if you're like, you know, if you played soccer or football, that would be kind of decorated on the mom itself. So it's insane, it's crazy. And in my mind, I thought everybody knew about this, right? Like how not? I mean, this was it. Like, you know, everyone should know about moms, but really no one did. Such a crazy thing. So oftentimes what happens, uh, because of our own kind of culture, um, we'll start talking about certain subjects, and we'll, there is going to be this natural disconnect. Because even though a lot of times we use the same, uh, what we call uh, dictionary vocabulary around certain things, the actual like, meaning of those words can be different depending on kind of the hearer. Um, and so because of that, um, in order to kind of get to know people and be able to speak and engage with people um, in a loving way, you really have to get to know that culture and you have to get to know the people in that culture. So we're going to start with a little bit of history around Philippians. So uh, uh, the Philippi was actually named after Alexander the Great's dad, Philip II. Um, and it was a city that had very minimal Jewish influence. In fact, there was no evidence that a synagogue ever existed in Philippi. The city itself was, was very important. In fact, it, it existed in called what, what was called the Via Ignatia, which is this military road that was very, like, uh, it was key for the military, for, uh, for uh, commerce, and also was a very popular trade route. Um, and if you're familiar with a little bit of kind of the history around Rome itself with Julius Caesar, this was a time when, when Mark Antony and Octavian were fighting Brutus and Cassius. And so, um, in fact, Mark Antony and Octavian defeated the armies of Brutus and Cassius at the Battle of Philippi in 42 BC. And this led to Brutus and Cassius actually committing suicide. Um, so that's kind, of, that's, that's kind of essentially kind of how the, the, the Roman history started to play out here. Now, it, it did become a Roman, Roman colony, and everyone there had the rights of Roman citizens. And because of this importance, military veterans were granted land there. And this was a very strategic move that the Emperor of Rhodes said, hey, this is an important city. We're going to put as many military people in this city as possible. Now... I grew up in a military family and in a military town. So El Paso, also being on the border, uh, it has, a, it has a, a giant army base there. Um, 
And so th there was a couple things. A lot of the, the same type of values and culture that were present in the military automatically kind of gets transferred down to kids that are in the military. So, you know, we were taught to like have grit, to like work really hard, to push through every single situation. You can push through and you can fight through pain. Like you can, you can deal with anything if you, if you set your mind to it. So I have a great example. My, my soccer coach, um, he, he was a very, very interesting guy. So he was a state wrestling high school champ. Um, he went to college, he wrestled in, in college and became a, a, a national champ there. He also played football. In fact, he played a couple of years in the NFL. Um, now, at the time when he was our soccer coach, he was actually a drill sergeant in the military and a bodybuilder. So if I can kind of paint the picture of what this person looks like, just giant muscles kind of just bulging out of his arms, these veins popping out, and like he wore probably the smallest shirts that you can find as well. And he, and he loved to yell, he loved to yell. So, and I have this one instance that's kind of just ingrained in my mind as an interaction that I had with him. Uh, I was having, a, you know, a, a fairly bad game one day, and I was just getting kind of onto myself, like nothing was working out, and I was just, man, I'm kind of beat down. I was like missing like shots that I, I should have been able to make, and I made some mistakes on defense, and now when that happens, typically you would go to the coach, and the coach would be like, hey, you know, it's okay, buddy, you know, just keep going, it's going to get better. That was not his reaction. So his reaction to me was, George, if you don't start doing better, I'm going to put my foot so far up your butt, it'll be Monday till we take it out. Now, this was disturbing on a couple levels. Number one, um, I was like 10 or 12 at the time. Like, so that was the first thing. Number two, um, it was Saturday. So I knew we had a couple days until Monday. So that was just, that was kind of a long time that I didn't want that to sit there. Um, and honestly, like, it really just didn't stop with soccer. Like, I once had a third grade art teacher tell me that she was going to hang me by my toes and shoot me at dawn. Okay. Um, now, it I told my parents then, it was like, okay, well, what were you doing? And I was like, well, okay. You know, so th this was the 80s when this happened. It was a much different time. So, you know, teachers said things like that to children. Um, so, uh, but that was, that was essentially my culture. My culture was essentially telling me that, hey, you have to be in line. You have to work hard. You have to grit through it. And, the way, and if you're not going to do that, you're going to be kind of pushed in that way. Right? And to be honest, like, that's something I had to break um, as I'm older. And it's something I still kind of have to break. Like when I get into like, moods where things aren't going the way that I want them to, it's really easy for me to get into the like, all right, everybody needs to start doing this. And my kids can definitely tell you like, when I get in those moods, they know it. Um, and so those, those are all things that we have to, to break. So all that being said, the, oftentimes the military life and the military culture is a culture that values things like being hard-nosed, uh, about keeping the status quo, um, and they often emphasize their Roman loyalties. In fact, most of the Roman citizens in Philippi were extremely well-off, and it, the, the entire culture was very self-sufficient. Um, we see Philippi for the first time in the story of Acts. Uh, and this was Paul. He was during his, his journeys. He was, it says that he was trying to go into Asia and the spirit wouldn't let him do. And then he had this dream where this man was reaching out to him and says, hey, cross over to Macedonia and help us. And so we see that story. And the, one of the very first interactions we see in verses 13 and 14 where it says, on the Sabbath day, he went outside the city gate by the river where they expected to find a place of prayer. 
we sat down and spoke to a woman gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond what Paul was saying. So here you have Lydia, who was a God-fearing woman. Now, what, what typically would have meant when you hear the term God-fearing woman is somebody essentially that kind of ad adhered to a lot of the Jewish beliefs, but because there wasn't a temple or a synagogue, they really couldn't, like, fulfill all the rules around kind of the, the Jewish re religion. So they, they kind of had this, this quote-unquote, fear of God, but they, they weren't officially Jewish. Um, and it was this woman who was essentially the very first convert in Philippi. Now, the next interaction we see is a story of a, of a slave girl who had this, um, basically she was, um, she was possessed by a demon that gave her the ability to see the future. And her owners made a lot of money off of her because she was able to do that. And so there became a point to where she kept following around Paul and Silas. And as she followed them, she would cry out, these men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, they're the servants of the most high God. Now, this wasn't, she wasn't doing this to be nice. She was, she was doing it to cause problems. In fact, this happened for a few days till finally Paul was like, hey, I'm going to cast this demon out. He did that and she no longer had the power to tell the future and her owners did not like that. So what they did, they started stirring, stirring up trouble. Um, and what we see that in Acts 16, 20 through 21, it says, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and they are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt in our practice. In fact, saying that anyone or anything that was above the emperor or just like Babylon above a king, saying that was anything above them or should be worshiped uh, was completely against the law. And so they riled up the crowd, um, they got them beaten and flogged, which, which kind of turned out to be a bad idea because they didn't realize Paul was a Roman citizen, and then citizens you really weren't allowed to do that, there was a due process. Um, but that's what ended up happening, they were thrown in jail, and here we see like the, the, just the amazing story of Paul and Silas after being beaten in jail in the middle of the night, wake up, start praising God, and then you see... Um, Basically, the shackles fall off, the doors come open, they're free, um, they're able to, you know, share the gospel with the jailer, the jailer and his family becomes converted, it's just an amazing story. So you kind of have these two stories of, of Lydia being the first convert, um, just as Paul was talking to a group of women outside the city, and then you had this amazing miraculous event where God is showing his power to uh, this, uh, um, this guard. And this is how the gospel first came to Philippi. Now, when we get into the book of Philippians, one thing to note that a lot of people believe that this is one of Paul's most personal and pastoral letters. Um, so much so that he, he uses a lot of words and terms in here very, very carefully. Uh, he, he's probably been to Philippi two, maybe three times um, by, the, by the time of writing this letter. And he is speaking to very mature believers. Um, believers that were very generous with, with money and with, with people. And the, the, the Philippi church was a church that supported Paul and other churches through, and, and other cities through gifts and being able to send people out as well. Uh, the majority of the believers were non-Jewish, and um, as we can tell, that there wasn't a big Jewish influence there. And there's a few themes that we're going to kind of keep hitting as we go through the book. So um, one of the biggest ones is, is living as citizens of heaven rather than citizens of Rome. Um, and we're going to definitely see a lot of themes of humility, servanthood, and meekness. 
um, which is kind of contrasts with some of the other like books. Like if you, if you if you're reading Romans, you'll see a lot of times like Christ's power is, is often emphasized and the power of God and the power of the gospel. Here it's different. You see Paul really taking a stance for it. He's really emphasizing the humility of God. And we're going to talk a lot more about that. And in fact, we see that here in the first couple verses. Um, he says, you know, kind of in verse 1, he says, Paul and Timothy, service, servants of Christ Jesus. That word servant means doulos, um, is often interpreted as slave. Um, other times when he's like writing his letters, he'll use like apostle. But here again, purposely using words that denote humility and meekness. Um, what we also see too is that he's writing this letter not only to all the saints, but he specifically mentions overseers and deacons. Um, again, this is also fairly unique. When you look in other epistles, he doesn't, he doesn't typically lump them into the beginning of the letter. It's usually he's just writing to the group of the church as a whole. I believe the reason he's doing this is that he's really emphasizing that he has a partnership and a love for the entire church, that the church overall is, is more mature. Um, in fact, a lot of times, Paul would write letters um, typically responding to conflict. And so you'll see that in, in 1 Corinthians a lot, where there's a lot of stuff going on, so the leaders in the church of 1 Corinthians will write Paul a letter about, hey, we need some help here because this is happening. Paul then responds back, and then he has like kind of all these admonishments and corrections and disciplines that he's kind of doling out in response to that. This is a little bit different here. Um, you know, the leaders of the church um, here uh, basically heard that Paul was in jail and reached out to him and to offer him gifts and to bring him kind of money and food. They even sent, uh, uh, sent somebody, one of their leaders, to go support and to care and to help him as well. Um, and so as we, as we kind of move on to verses 3 through, uh, three through 5, we see a couple things. Like Paul, again, is mentioning that I thank God for every remembrance of you. Every single time I'm able to think about all the ways that you have, that you have offered to help. Um, you know, because it wasn't just this time. In fact, what we kind of see throughout is that the church in Philippi had a history of helping Paul and sending people to him and sending out gifts. In fact, they were typically a very generous people. Again, a lot of the, a lot of the Romans here were very well off and they gave out of their abundance um, in order to help other, other people in other churches. And he, and he prays for them during this time, too. Um, he continues to pray that um, because of their partnership, that they will, they will always, like, grow and to learn. And that's what we see as we move on to kind of the middle verses here. There is a, there's a personal connection that Paul has to the, uh, to the Philippians. Um, in fact, he actually calls them co-laborers and partners more than any other church. Um, if you, if you kind of contrast, contrast that with 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So if you look at that, it says, For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, you are not worldly and behaving like mere humans. Um, so he considers the believers there to be a lot more mature. He's not basically kind of coming to them at the point with milk. He's actually going to get into some very deep issues here, and he's going to be confronting them and challenging them uh, in, some, in some deeper ways. Um, 
In fact, what, what is also interesting is that when he was first there, again, we talked about one of the biggest miraculous events was when he was beaten and thrown in jail. And it was through that imprisonment and through those events that essentially led to the gospel being given and um, spread throughout Philippi. And so now the Philippians are hearing that he's in jail again, and they, they kind of have that same affinity, remembering what happened the last time Paul was in jail. And then kind of being, having that heart to say, you know what, if God did that here for us, he can do that in Rome as well. And so there, there is this little bit of give and take, and there's this relationship. Now, what, what, I, what I really like here is that um, Paul continues just kind of this, this affection that he has for them. In fact, if you're looking at verses 8 through 11, it says, For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. If you look at the, the literal translation for the affection of Christ Jesus, it's literally translated in the bowels of Jesus. Like something that's like so deep inside that you just kind of have that, that feeling in your stomach of, of how it pours out. Um, and I, I just, I, in my mind, I just remember bowels a lot more. So I feel like that's the appropriate thing to, to keep in, in scripture here. Um, but he, he has that. And then he moves on in verse 9 where it says, And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in the knowledge and every kind of discernment. The love that he's talking about here. Um, is agape. And I'm throwing in kind of like a lot of word studies just because like, you know, Corey kind of, you know, basically said that we didn't do enough word studies. So this is really for him. So if he's listening, I hope, you know, or, or tell him, like if you, if you talk to him, tell him that we did some word studies and it should make his heart happy. So, uh, but Paul is specifically using the word agape here. And it has to do with that self-sacrificial love. And the knowledge that he's talking about as well is an experiential knowledge. It's a knowledge that not only did you, did you take into your head, but you, you applied it to your heart and you, and you played it out. And the discernment is not just a discernment of wisdom, but it's a discernment that um, basically it's like, it's like this emotional attachment. And what it's really trying to say is that you're so ground with the Holy Spirit that you're able to kind of feel um, whether a situation is, is wise or good or whether that you need to reject it. And so this is, uh, this is the, the call that these are, these are traits that the Philippian church already had, and he's asking them to continue to grow in those ways. Um, and then it moves on a little bit later here in verse 10 where it says that you may approve the things that are superior and pure and blameless in the day of Christ. So the, the, another word for superior is actually, you can say excellent. Um, so if you've ever seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, at the very end of the first mo movie, do you know what they say? Does anybody remember kind of like what that is? Like his big Keanu Reeves moment, what does he say? Like if you know it, say it, Matt. Be excellent. That's right, he said, be excellent to one another. That's my Keanu Reeves impersonation, so you're welcome. <laughs> be excellent to one another. So very biblical, this is what it is. So. So remember that. If you ever see the movie, uh, I would recommend it. And then just know that this is, this is very biblical. Um, and what are those things that are, that are excellent? Well, again, we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at chapter 12 and 13. And in chapter 12, there's this argument that's going on. And people are arguing about, okay, which gifts are the best? Is it, is it gifts of service? Is it prophecy? Is it our pastors? Like, you know, what, what is the best? And, and basically what Paul is saying, listen, you don't need to be fighting. Like, you're all supposed to have different gifts, but you're all part of the same body, and all those gifts come from the same spirit, so we shouldn't fight over them. 
And it concludes in verse 31 where it says, but instead, desire the greater gifts. What are the greater gifts? Let's look at chapter 13. And he says, if I speak in humic or angelic tongues but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a cleaning cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understands all the mysteries and knowledge, and if I have the faith so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable. It does not keep record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, love, uh, it believes all things, it hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. But as for knowledge, it will come to an end. And in verse 13, he says, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And then it, he kind of continues on a little bit in, in Galatians in 5.22 to 23. And he says, he talks about kind of the fruit of all of this. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So really what Paul is saying in, in these verses is that their love, this, this self-sacrificial love, would grow based upon this applied knowledge of, of caring for people. And living that out. And then through discernment, through the Holy Spirit, of being so enraptured with the Holy Spirit, that they have this discernment. And that love would produce a character that is recognized by the fruits of the Spirit. And that this only comes from Jesus Christ. Now, if you, uh, if you, if you read the email, you'll notice that there was a link to a video in the, in the email. Um, and what that video does, it kind of talks about the structure of Philippians. And that the entire book is, is centered around a poem uh, written in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And what, this is probably something we're going to come back to often here. Um, but that poem is, adopt the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. And this is the gospel. Paul is, is taking this gospel, and now he's applying it to this culture and honestly, is, is a probably pretty self-reliant. And again, he's not telling them to, that they have to leave this culture, but they need to press in, and they, they have to be different. And he's telling them that this good work, the good work that he's saying, hey, that needs to continue, yeah, it was their salvation. And their salvation, it wasn't because of, of their self-reliance, and it wasn't because of their social status. It wasn't because of their wealth. That good work started with their submission to the person of Jesus. They're supposed to engage to show that their neighbors, that they are first citizens of heaven, and heaven's values is different. Heaven values humility and submission to Jesus above all. He is telling them that the way that we grow as Christians 
is the same way that we come to faith as Christians. Uh, and honestly, this is why uh, communion is so important. And this is why we take it. And this is why we, we, we do this every single week. In fact, if you look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, So then, just as you received Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. The gospel that Paul is sharing with the Philippians is that Jesus, who was immense, who was above all, um, came down, he emptied himself, he made himself a form of a servant. So not only did he become man, but he even became the servant to man. He died on the cross. He took on our debt. He paid the price for our sin. And then through that, we have eternal life. That's what this remembrance is today. That's what communion is today, is remembering that the way that we were saved is the same way that we all continue to live the, the, the Christian life. This is the way that we continue going forward with humility, in meekness, and in love. And engaging a culture in a way to where we can show the world the love of Christ through our interactions with them. So let us pray. Jesus, we thank you, Father, that we have an amazing example to follow. That Jesus, you did not consider yourself too good to come down and die for us. But Jesus, you, you willingly and lovingly emptied yourself. You paid the horrible price of dying on a cross, of being beaten, of being tortured, and of descending into the depths in order that we may also experience the resurrection that you experienced, Father. Help us never to take that for granted. Help us to always remember that as we take communion and as we, as we join together with each other, that we, as followers of you, will continue to glorify and to praise you in everything that we do. In your name we pray.